Rasheen, what's good, man? How you doing? I'm good, man. How you doing? Man, I can't complain, man. Uh, thank you again so much for, for taking the time to be on my series. Come on, bro. As you guys know, this is, this is Breaking Bread. Uh, this is my guy, Rasheen Taha. Uh, he was born and raised in Harlem, New York. Uh, he's a general manager and VP of Rock the Bell, which is a company founded by LL. Um, he's a Stanford undergrad, uh, Northwestern MBA. And I've got, of course, I got to say that you are a fellow Reardon fellow. So, uh, shout out to Reardon. Shout out to Reardon. Shout out to Reardon. <laughs> so, how you been, man? How, how's it going during this pandemic? How, what you've been able to tap into um, over these last few months? Oh, man, this pandemic. Um, so, fortunately, I'm healthy. Yeah. Family's healthy. Been able to be COVID free. I've definitely known people who got it and had people who had family members pass from it. So we've been taking it serious and just been fortunate to be able to be COVID free. Also just the luxury to be able to, which it truly is a luxury just to be able to work from home. So not everybody's even afforded that opportunity and that luxury. So super grateful to be able to still keep things going um, while you know in the middle of this pandemic. Um, it's definitely had its range of challenges I'm a very extroverted, socialized person. And um, you can imagine not being able to, unless I just went to Atlanta. I mean, apparently, I guess if you go to Atlanta, you could just do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> like, just wow. So I've had to like suppress a portion of my normal self, but I think it's been good to kind of tap into a lot of different other things to kind of slow down and really be still in some ways. Again, it's a blessing. And it's a privilege to even have the space to even think outside of being sick or whatever it is to even process how you're doing and being still in that way, but have been able to do a lot of that. And it's been, it's been revealing. It's been, it's been good. Like I'm definitely excited to be able to safely, you know, go back full throttle in some ways, but I still think there's a lot of the day-to-day -day practices and keeping some of that stillness, which typically just isn't my like general essence. Um, I think I was able to have this period and to to actually be still and it's something I do want to continue to implement kind of moving forward. I feel you on that too. The, definitely the being stillness. I think uh, we all get caught up in and keeping ourselves busy and and uh, especially if you're in Los Angeles or in the New York area, just like what's my next hustle? Um, but this was the first time in next anything hustle day party brunch right workout whatever flight just a lot so it's been cool to just for a second yeah yeah i agree so so the little bit of the backstory is that um i met rasheen um in 2018 and you came and presented at um a reardon fellows panel and one thing i admired about you was that you were unapologetically yourself you know you walked in the room and for the first time it's like you you hear that you went to stanford and, and northwestern but like i think people stereotypically have this view of how that person's supposed to look and you were, mm -hmm. nah, this is just me. Yeah, I went to these badass schools, but that's like all I'm about. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about like growing up, you grew up in Harlem and- I Grew up in Harlem, but moved around too. Moved around too a little bit, but yeah. In the New York area, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about like growing up in, in, in that New York area and then going to Stanford, like stereotypically, like, or what they, they may, may believe is that that's not possible. Like, what made you feel like that was possible? What was your biggest influence behind that? You know, I mean, yeah, you know, growing up in New York, you you grow up fast. Yeah. You grow up real fast in New York. Like, it's not, you know, it's not Mayberry. 
in many ways. And, you know, you grow up fast. You're a kid, you're an 11 year old and you're getting on the train, you're getting on the bus and, you know, you might be going, you might live in the Bronx and going to school in Harlem, living in Harlem, going to school in the Bronx. So like just moving and shaking. Like, so you just grow up faster, I think in New York than just some other places. And, you know, I, I always, I really do attribute some of that to my uncle. Like he kind of put a little seed in my ear about Stanford, like early, early, early. I don't think he was out here kind of on some inception madness with me, but like, I always thought like, I never, I, I was never going to go to a Stanford. Like, I grew up playing basketball, thought I'll probably go play like basketball. Like, you know, think about playing basketball, the Ivies was going to go to Brown um, and ended up deciding between like Brown and Stanford um, when it finally came down to it. And so I always thought I'd probably stay East coast. Um, and Stanford was one of those things. Like I kind of saw it. I knew it, I knew it was a good school. You know, I remember they had a really good basketball team when I was in high school, maybe it was like my freshman or sophomore year. And I think like Brevin Knight was the point guard there. Um, we're watching games. We were watching games all the time. He was like, yo, you see Brevin? He's like, yo, study his game, study his game. Um, I was like, all right. And then the, I only went to like two games when I was a kid in high school, two NBA games. So when Brevin Knight made it to the league, um, he played for the Cavs and he took me to a Nets game. So that was the first NBA game I ever went to. And so again, it was a Stanford dude who then like went to the NBA and was like, huh, okay. And then so I just kept kind of like following Stanford, following Stanford. I remember even back in the day, he had like a Stanford baseball t-shirt that he had and he ended up throwing a t-shirt on me. So I have this picture of me like when I was sixth grade, but I really, but again, Stanford was not in my head. Cause even with the school I went to, a lot of people, either you went to Harvard or Yale or BC or Notre Dame or Georgetown or, you know, the East Coast, the range of the East Coast schools, the school I went to was a good school in high school, like Fort Prep. So you had a lot of kids feeding them those schools, but no one's really going west. And, you know, I said I moved around a little bit. I'd already lived on the West Coast. I lived in Seattle in seventh and eighth grade. Um, so I'd had a little bit of West Coast experience. So going west was never that intimidating to me because I had lived out there for two years. Um, so when it came down to apply to schools and figuring it all out, Stanford was the only West Coast school that I even applied to. And I wasn't even going to, because I was like, I'm just gonna go play ball at Brown and do whatever. And my uncle was like, go get this application. And so he basically punked me, forced me to do the app. That's when you had to like drive the app down and get it postmarked at a certain time and turn it in, not this like email madness. So like flew down to get it at like 11.58, right before the deadline at 34th Street um, in the big ass post office over there. Got it stamped, went in, didn't even think about it. So this whole time I'm like, all right, I'll either go to Brown or I'll go to Penn. Georgetown like I'm gonna go east and I remember getting the getting the 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 letter kind of letting me in and Stanford just does I don't know just letter just kind of spoke like all your sacrifice and all these things like this is for you and I was like man it's kind of crazy and then they're like wait you're gonna fly me out there to go to Abbott weekend so I was like I bet like cool trip to Cali bet like all right so I would have my visit at Brown I was at Brown right before so I remember going my, my, my like Abbott weekend at Brown looking at, and I, I mean, Brown's an amazing school. I just didn't feel that, I feel it. And I think that certain things are like, I know if it's right for me, it just didn't feel right. Even though I was like, I could have gone there, you know, play ball, like it just didn't feel right in my soul. And I remember leaving Brown and going straight from Brown to Stanford for the visit afterwards. Okay. Which they probably shouldn't have me do. So I'm getting on the plane, I got a North Face on, beanie, you know, like, you know, cold, leaving Brown, leaving Providence. I landed in SF. I fall asleep in the in the super shuttle, you know what I'm saying? I throw it back, I fall asleep in the super shuttle and I wake up on Palm Drive um, at Stanford. And I remember waking up and it's just like beautiful and bright and all I see is palm trees. 
And I'm like, yo, what is this? And I found myself like unzipping the North Face. Like the beanie is kind of coming off. And I'm like, yo, what is this, man? And I remember getting there and like the people that I met, I kind of sold it. It was just like, you know, and again, I didn't get recruited to play there. And it was hard for me to go against my identity as like a basketball player, student athlete, whatever it was. I'd have to walk on or something like that. But I knew it wasn't going to be like my freshman year. I had to really, whatever. So I had to really make a big decision. But the people that I met, um, I kind of felt like, you know, like this is, these people were special. Not to say that these people aren't special in other places. It just, it felt special for me. It felt like a freedom. It felt like a weight kind of was lifting it. You know, the, the, the energy of the school is like the inmates run the asylum. They kind of let the students kind of dictate and you can kind of do whatever you want. And that's kind of my spirit in general. So I think it just like, it like I felt the frequency and then the people I met and then, you know, ended up going. And I think, you know, to this day is like probably, you know, top one, top two decisions I ever made in my life. Right. And so you, you mentioned that your uncle was a big influence in you making that decision. Did he go to an Ivy League or did he go to one of these top schools like that? Did he play ball? Like, why was he such a big influence specifically for you? So he actually, he went to Wesleyan initially and then ended up transferring to Columbia. So then he was working at Columbia. So I had already been playing ball growing up, like on a college campus. Like, and I got lucky again, that's an exposure thing, like having an uncle who actually went to a school like that. So it wasn't as intimidating to me to be like, okay, you're going to be the kid, even though you're from New York and you're black and all of that, that like, yo, you, you can go to a good school. Like it was kind of early on. I was like, I knew I was kind of good at the school thing. I knew I was good at ball. I was like, all right, one of these is going to pay for this. We ain't got no money. So either the books or the score ball is going to pay for it. If it's both great. So I had already kind of been, you know, comfortable going to Columbia and, and at the campus and playing ball there. Like, so it wasn't this like, oh my God, this hot, like in, in that way. Um, and plus I went to the high school I went to was a really good, school too so you had a lot of kids kind of going there so he always was kind of an influence saying like look there's certain schools like I remember getting certain letters from schools that he was like you're just not going there um he was like yo you're, you're doing well enough academically to place yourself in these institutions uh this is where you're going to go and I think that that's just like lottery like I got lucky like there's a lot of kids who have the same level of talent but they might not have the exposure and had somebody who understood the game who went to it so had I not had that I could have been in different stages and that doesn't mean just because you went to Stanford you can make it you go to Stanford or anywhere and make it happen but I just got lucky to have that influence from him to be like nah this is probably where you're going to be and if you continue doing your thing these are going to be the options that are going to be afforded to you so once that kind of got ingrained in, into me early exposed on his side and then also I made the decision in high school to be like yo you're just going to go get really good grades and you're going to get nice balls to give yourself options that's kind of how it ended up playing itself out yeah that's really dope and and I like that you were able to get that kind of exposure and almost like you were foreseeing yourself in that setting, whether it was at Columbia or one of these top schools and you weren't as like intimidated by the whole process because I feel like that's where a lot of people go wrong. And that's the reason why sometimes I even, I think about, I, I started this web series is because you wanna give people that framework, that idea of like, it is possible. You just need to continuously put yourself in that mindset. So um, yeah, I, I appreciate you, sh you, sh you sharing that. So you talked a little bit about your experience at Stanford, but if you can kind of expand on that, like what was it like? What were you able to tap into at, at Stanford that you felt like was was monumental for your post-career? Oh man. Um I don't think when I got there, I wasn't that strategic. It wasn't <laughs> like I was like, I know I want to be this and then I'm gonna do these things. Like I got there and I was just like a knucklehead having a blast. 
So I think the first thing, honestly, was just actually just having a blast and like having this amazing group of people. And I really focused on the social aspect, like really, really, like if there were grades on social, on being social, like I really excelled. <laughs> I should have got course credit for that. You know, like I really developed that. Now with that, actually building all these relationships has played into a lot of the different businesses and things that I'm interested in um, and have done in my, in my life. So I think that's one thing. I think, um, so I wasn't that strategic. And then I think about like, I then was like, all right, cool. Like I knew I kind of wanted to work in culture. That was something that I knew I did kind of, who knew what it was. And I'm thinking 2000, whatever, I was calling it culture in that way, the way we do now. But I love sports. I love music. I love entertainment. Uh, we had a Stanford concert network. And I remember my junior year, ended up running and ended up becoming like the head of the Stanford concert network. So my junior, senior year was booking concerts and because I knew I wanted to work in the music industry. So that allowed me the opportunity, like outside of class, actually be able to get real life experience, um, be able to get in there talking to the booking agents, like, you know, talking to managers, figuring out what's the concert slate, how do you promote it, like all these different things. I kind of got the opportunity to do that, like through a club, um, which was kind of cool because I knew I like I wanted to work in that space. And that was the only thing that seemed like, an, uh, wait a minute, if I kind of do this, then I can kind of flip this for something else. Uh, so that kind of that really did was like a formative experience. And I think the other thing too, is I, I, I mentioned that inmates run the asylum. Um, and I, you know, I graduated in 04 at Stanford. You know, Stanford is an entrepreneurial school and it's known for that, but not in the same way that it is now. Mm -hmm. Not in the same way, like people primarily like, especially like black students, they weren't talking about, I'm gonna go and be an entrepreneur. They were becoming doctors, lawyers, consultants, engineers, you know, so maybe something saving the world, whatever it is, maybe more grad school. Um, but they weren't coming out being like, I'm just going to be an entrepreneur. But the energy of the school made you feel like you could kind of do anything. So I think the going there again, like kind of what made me want to go there at first, I said the inmates run the asylum, the fact you can create your major, the fact that people just were doing all these range of things, it kind of felt like it gave me permission to say, okay, cool. Like, yeah, I have a Stanford degree. But because I have a Stanford degree, that kind of gives me the opportunity now to kind of do anything I want. And the worst case scenario, I have a Stanford degree. I can, and if I have to do something, then, then fuck it, I'll just go do that. Um, and I think that kind of gave me some permission moving forward to feel like the confidence to be like, you know, what? like you can bet on yourself. You don't have to follow the road that kind of everybody else has followed. And if you got to go back to it, they'll probably let you in. What, and I don't know if that's right or wrong, you know, but that's just what my mind was thinking. They'll let you back into it because you, you know, you went to that school. Yeah, that's dope. That's so dope. Um, and you mentioned like, okay, you know, people at Stanford or wherever else is like, are becoming doctors, lawyers, bankers, whatever. You decided actually once you left school to go work for Interscope in California. So you decided, you're talking about a little bit about betting on yourself. I imagine that's a little bit part of that. You went to LA and worked for Interscope. What was that decision like? And how did you even get in the kind of the door there? Yeah, so a little back. So I, when I was graduating, you know, my senior year, I knew I wanted to work in the entertainment space or at least something kind of cool. Mm -hmm. And I had already interned at the New York Stock Exchange as a when I was in college and I hated it. So I was like, this ain't for me. So I was like, I want to do something fun, something cool, fly, whatever it is. So I remember I interviewed with MTV and this was when like TRL was popping and like they had like this, this, um, this program where they only took like 10 people in the country for this like accelerated program through MTV and Viacom end up getting into it, but they paid no money. And I was like, yo, this would be super dope. I always thought I was gonna go back home. Like I never thought I was gonna move to LA. 
I always thought I was going to like go back home to New York. That was always a plan. And, but they were paying no money, which meant I had to move back home. And I was like, yo, the way I've been moving and shaking these past four years and I got to be back in the crib. Like, that's just not, <laughs> it's not where I'm at right now. So, so then it made me think about LA and I started looking at jobs. Um, and my, actually my first job out was working at Robinson's Bay and it was in, in the, in the retail industry and they got bought by Macy's. So I was an assistant buyer at Robinson's Bay and it was like, all right, well, it's clothing all right, you know, y'all got polo and nautica. All right, that's fly. Cool. So I interviewed and I got lucky. They didn't put me in like furnishing and they didn't put me in like sheets because they or like pots. Like they could have put me, these are all things that are in the department store that they have buyers for. They actually put me in like men's designers. So like I had, I had polo and nautica and Calvin Klein and all that good stuff. Cause I think they knew like I was a flight risk for real. Um, so they put me in there and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. It was my first, I walked in, no lie. It was my first 15 minutes on the job. And I was like, I want to quit. Like I knew it. Like literally first 15 minutes on the job. I was like, this ain't for me. Like I did, I moved to LA. I was like, all right, bet on myself in that way. Um, I was like, this is kind of crazy. So what ended up happening was I ended up being in LA, working that job. And I always kind of knew I wanted to do events. And because I did events in college and through parties and stuff, like I always knew there was this like space I wanted to do events. So I ended up working at Robinson's May. And then at nighttime, I got connected through a friend and she knew some of the promoters in LA who were doing like some of the big nightclubs. And they're like, hey, you can kind of come sub-promote for me. And I was like, whatever, I've thrown my own, probably need sub-promote for you. Mind you, I know like tw literally 20 people in LA, but I'm like, I right, whatever. So I end up kind of working for them. So I'm sub-promoting for them at nighttime, but I'm working at Robinson's May in the daytime. So I do that for six months. And then I get to a point, I'm like, I can't do this no more. And I quit. But I knew that also being working in the clubs and meeting people, I would meet people in the music industry. So my plan was like, use the clubs to build your network, meet people in the music industry and these different things. Cause I don't care what walk of life you're from, from 10 to 10 to 2 AM, you gonna pull up. Whether the music industry, you know, illicit or non-illicit, like however it's gonna be, like everyone's gonna pull up. The doctors, the lawyers, the models, you know, D-boys, everybody's gonna end up in this space. So, and I know music is a big part of it, let me start meeting people in the industry. So I ended up meeting people in the industry for my nighttime extra work, which then led me to getting on an Interscope. So I ended up quitting Robinson's May and then coming over to work in an Interscope. So was, that's how I ended up getting on an Interscope. And I didn't know, again, this was like, again, not knowing anybody in LA, the 20 people and going out four to five nights a week, meeting people, pulling out the sidekick, taking people's numbers down, whatever, giving people my little card. Um, but every single night going out, every time I'm in, I'm like, yo, I'm gonna meet 50 new people, 50 new people, 50 new people. If you're by the DJ, meet the DJ who know them, music people, bet. And I started to just be out and meet, build these relationships, told them what I wanted to do. People kind of saw, you know, some dude, they're kind of saw my hustle. And was like, all right, yo, let me walk you in. Ended up meeting the people at Interscope, interviewed, got over at Interscope. So that's kind of how I ended up getting there. So there's even was some betting on myself. And it was early realizing like, yo, like this other shit ain't for me. That's dope. I, I didn't know that story. I didn't even know about you working at the New York Stock Exchange. I don't think you mentioned that at Reardon, but yeah, I don't, it doesn't make the LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's dope. And, and I think the coolest thing too is that um, many people, even though they may identify early on in their career that this isn't the job for them, they don't quickly pivot. They kind of just say, okay, well, they're paying me. It's like, let me just stay here. Uh, whether they go to Stanford or not, like, yeah. no where you are like they just decide like yeah I was depressed though honestly like it, it, it I was depressed and I was like yo this can't be and mind you also like it was big it was like you know you're not 22 years old 
thinking like, all right, I'm depressed and my, you do all this and you get a job and in six months you quit. Yeah. Like that is not the normal thing, especially first time students. You know what I'm saying? People are looking at me like, what are you, like literally, it took forever. People at first were like, what are you doing? Like your music, your party, like who, huh? Like they were looking at me like I was crazy for real. Because again, it's not what you expect also out of your typical Stanford student. Um, but I was depressed and it was just like, yo, I'm not, I can't be this unhappy. Like I went from being really happy, like real happy in college to then like be this unhappy. And I was like, this can't be the rest of my life. So. Right. And, and I think, I think it takes a lot of guts too. Like, how did you deal with the pressure of graduating from Stanford and having to perform postgraduate? Like, I'm sure there was some type of like your friend, your other friends are maybe working at these other companies and stuff. And you're at the retail store and then now you're at the club and now you're at not maybe Interscope is more of the, the typical household name. How well, yeah, well, a little bit. I was, I again, I mean, the pressure, like the, I was a buyer, right? So I was at their corporate, like I was at their corporate thing. And then they got bought by Macy's like five months to being in there. So essentially I was at Robinson Bay, but I've been an employee at Macy's. So like, again, I didn't, I didn't go out and swing out all the way and be like, yo, I'm just going to work at Jimmy Jazz and like, you know, be on the store. Like I, I went through the interview process. Like I was not that much of a rebel. I needed X amount of money, right? Like there was, I followed all those things. But once I got here, I got to LA and I was just like, yo man, like I, this is really making me unhappy. So I got to figure this out. So I had to do the combination of all right, the money I was making at the club, I was saving. Okay. Had to figure out my budget over here. All right, here's a little money I'm making from Interscope. What it's going to be. All right, bet like, you know, take a swing. And like, you know, if it works, cool. Um, if it doesn't, you know, so it wasn't like I, it wasn't like it wasn't completely like non-name brand or anything like that. Like I, I, I followed the mold, um, you know, in the beginning. I just think I started to slowly deviate a little earlier. And so then at, at Interscope, you were the, the promotions coordinator. And so what, what was like some of the work that you've done, you did there? Hold on a second, because this dog laughing ass out again. Hold okay. on, dog. I bet I'm gonna have to edit that. <laughs> it's all good. So I'll ask it again. So you were a promotions coordinator at, at Interscope. Mm -hmm. The work you did there, I saw you did some stoop, some work for like Gwen Stefani and Snoop Dogg and so forth. What did that really entail? Yeah, so it was cool. We um we really working directly with DJs. So this was we were in the urban promotions divisions and we had, you know, we were working Rich Boy's first record. We're working Pharrell's album. We're working like you know a lot of singles that are going to radio. So we built relationships with DJs like the big DJs, you know, on radio, big DJs in the club, you know, college DJs. And really we're saying, hey, like, okay, I know you got a range of stuff, but like, let me get you the song a little bit earlier. Like, let me, you know, show some love and like, you know, let's make sure you kind of push in these records. So it really was like having that network of DJs. And then as the new singles were coming through, like making sure, like, of course, we're going to play the smash hits, but also like play this, like show, show me a little bit of love, you know what I'm saying? And play this other joint here so we can start getting that bubbling. Um, so it required actually a lot of, you know, for me, so, if it, so they were like the national DJs and then you have the club DJs. And because I already was kind of promoting, they knew that I was already out. So then I was there like, all right, the DJs are kind of working with on that scene, like make sure you're out and about. And when you're doing that, 
make sure they're playing these new records. Make sure they're giving, you know, G-Unit a lot more love. Make sure they're giving Holla Back Girl all this extra love. So that's kind of what I did there. And then just because I came from college, I kind of saw an opportunity to say, well, when I was in school, it was really hard to get to the label. And I know I'm not that special. I'm not the only person in college who wants to work in the music industry. There's not really a pipeline. You have to really... It, like there's a lot of hustling and luck and all that. But I was like, if you could start to develop a little bit of a pipeline, you know, I think there could be an opportunity to get more college students and as to into who want interested in music, but also serve the business, get these records to these college students and these college DJs can play it. So I started, I essentially used Facebook and started to build like a college uh, label representative label representative program. So this is like early, this is 05 Facebook. So I just basically added a whole bunch of people, told people I work at Interscope. Like if you're interested in music, holla at me you know, set up a little program, was able to get them on a distribution list, have them send them out the music and the pamphlets and like the little flyers and stuff. And they're sending me like recaps of people at the parties and all of that, but it kind of helped like spread that out. But it also gave people like an opportunity to get into the music industry and at least get that on their resume um, as, a, you know, as, you know, as part of their package when they want to like go out and graduate. So that kind of was kind of something that I saw just because I didn't have that opportunity. Like you had it every now and then, but I didn't really like have a lot of opportunities like that. So I was like, let me figure out a way to kind of extend it out and build something new that wasn't at Interscope at the time. So that's kind of like when I was there, what I was really focused on. That's crazy that you identified Facebook as as the, the, the distribution way to get some of these artists out there before like oh. now people do it uh, like everybody does it now, but I imagine at the time nobody was, and this is probably where IG, so like you have to have a college ID to get on. Yeah, it was still college ID to get on. It wasn't even like your Gmail or whatever, like your, your Yahoo or whatever. Like you had to have a college ID to get on. So that again, it was closed to like it was specific to I just graduated, you know. So it made sense to, to be able to now I can go in there and infiltrate in that way because they just didn't have access to it yet. That's crazy. And so, so you you worked there and you were there for like less than a year. Mm -hmm you go off and start your own company, which is KOT Group. It was like mm -hmm. an entertainment marketing solutions for experiential learning, or sorry, spiritual um, opportunities. So, and then you have your MBA, NFL, musical artists as your client. And then you have Interscope as well as your client. So how in the hell did you finesse that? Uh, yeah, so again, remember I, I started sub-promoting. So I was still doing parties. Okay. And so when I interviewed with Interscope, it was like, look, like I'm already out in the streets. I know who's who, I know the spots. So use me to get this to them. So that was part of like my pitch. I didn't, I wish I would have been as strategic. I probably didn't say it as well right now, but those were things that I was like, at least, and they were like, okay. So what was happening was because I was having my events, it was this combination. I would have my events at nighttime, right? And I was still working in Interscope in the day. So I would go to my event and whatever the new records are, if I'm hiring my, my DJ, I'm telling my DJ what to play. Then I would find out like, hey, Interscope, you have a slate of artists who are going to be doing promotional runs. So I'm like, well, if you're going to have them come to LA and they're going to hit the club anyway, you might as well go to my club. <laughs> like, you might as well, you know, come to my stuff. Then, then, it, then it also happened because I played ball. I had friends, you know, I played play ball you know, in high school, didn't end up playing in college. But I had a lot of people who I played with, you know, whatever level of good I was, like pretty good. These same cats I played on AAU teams and stuff started going to the NBA. So now you have people in the NBA, if you're gonna play the Lakers or the Clippers and you're gonna be out, hey yo, fuck with your boy. Come host, my, come host my joint. Then I had my friends from college. They went to the NFL. So now I got friends from college 
who went to the NFL, who played college football, went to the NFL. So homies on the Chargers, homies on the Cowboys, another homie on the Broncos, homie on the Redskins, whatever it is, or the Washington football team now. Like, yo, you're in LA, start hosting my joints. So I ended up having kind of like this cycle. And then because I was in music, I was meeting and I was also, I was meeting everybody else in music. So once I got in, I was like, let me meet the people at Defner, Jive, RCA, J Records, whatever, independent. Like, let me meet everybody. So now, and no matter who I'm meeting, I always had something that like, I wasn't just like working at Interscope. I also had like, yo, if you want to pull up, I'll take care of you. Come through, I'll take care of you. And that combination plus going out a whole bunch, plus starting to build a team, was able to start building this like major like nightclub promotion empire that we started to do in LA. And we had like it fully rocking for six years till I decided for whatever dumb reason to go to business school. <laughs> um, <laughs> but literally had it like completely going. So because of that, then I was able to start taking those relationships and then say, so it started with the nightclub stuff, but then we we're able to say, okay, cool. And then now it became a crazy cycle. So if you're in LA, you got to come through one of our spots, you come to one of our joints, we're meeting their handlers, we're meeting their business people, we're meeting their agents, we're meeting all these different people to now be able to say, okay, cool. Like, you know what? We can do private events for you. We can do stuff for like your political campaign. So like we were doing young professional outreach for Kamala Harris when she was running for California attorney general. Like, but we were routing them through our nightclubs and then using that to be the place to host it. And then we're doing all these fundraising events. So we were figuring out that the nightclub was the base, but we were able to use that as the way to bring people into the funnel and then figure out different things. So like, yeah, it might turn into some digital marketing solutions for you, some brand, some brand advice and strategy for you, a gifting suite for you during NF during the Grammys or BET awards or whatever. So since we're meeting all these people and we had all these partnerships and we had all these relationships, we started to leverage them and to figure it out multiple ways to serve them. So that's kind of where it started where King of Things Entertainment was the name of the promotion group. KLT Marketing Group became like the umbrella that like King of Things Entertainment and then all the marketing got to kind of live under. So that's kind of what we did for my business partner and I and the squad that we developed for six years, like, you know, six years full time um, until, you know, 2012 decides to go to beat school. That's crazy. That like that thing, that's when it all clicks. Like that's that's a straight up finesse, but it was like beautifully done, like how you were able to leverage just getting into the door. Like you saw a crack, you got into the door and then you decided. I thought once I got in, it was over. Yeah, exactly. Like, I feel like once I got in, it was over. But it was also it was work. It was like yeah, I was like I was gonna willing to go out five nights a week and then get back on the computer and do this and figure this out and have a meeting here and do this and start building the team. And it was super hard. And you know, I look back now, like you know, it's it was hard as hell dealing with racist ass club owners. Like oh my god, racist ass club owners, brands not understanding it. Like it was constantly being told up. Like it was all of that too. Like I'm you're getting the glory of it whatever it is but like it was you know it's being told no 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 finally yes okay cool leveraging the yes packaging that up all right they said yes you want to rock with us okay. so went through the recession all that like these were all the things that we really went through kind of building that business out um but it was i think the foundation of you know everything else it gave me the confidence like after that it was like you can do anything you want right and you mentioned like you, you had a partner. Uh, could you talk a little bit about like how you went about building your team? Yeah. Um, so my partner, I met, you know, Antonio Key, we met in, in, in undergrad. We met in undergrad. So we were like homies in undergrad. We took a class together. And I remember we, we were in a group together and it was my senior year. And I was a senior, he was a junior and I was checked out. 
like I had complete senioritis. He was on it all the time, whatever we were in this group. I was like, thank you for holding it down because I am the person in the group that is not holding it down right now. Like I'm in the group, I'm gonna present it well, but I am not actually contributing the way that, but we're friends, so y'all just gonna be, it's all good. Y'all, oh, Shane just acting like that. And I remember we were walking one day and he ended up, um, we were walking one day, I was like, yo, you're gonna be my business partner. I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I knew I had that aspiration. He was like, yeah, whatever, Shane. I'm like, I'm telling you, you're gonna be my business partner. So he's like, whatever, whatever. So he initially was a consultant. Um, so I got go and graduate and he's being a consultant. Um, he was working at Deloitte and I ended up, I ended up hitting him up a whole bunch because he was still based in LA. And I was like, yo, I got this promotion thing starting to pick up, working at Interscope, got these relationships. I need help. So the first part was realizing immediately is like, I got it to a point. I cannot grow this. Like who cares how hard I work? I need help. So I was like, recruiting him for months <laughs> on his neck because I remembered how he handled himself and I knew his mind and I was like I think we would be a really good team um eventually convinced him and you know we took a swing and you know we decided to you know run and do this and you know we ran for it for six years um it was extremely successful from there we started to realize like all right well the same way you know I, I'm meeting all these different people and mind you, everybody I was meeting kind of had jobs or whatever it is. So like I'm asking people like, yo, like I got this promotion thing over here on the side, you know, like come, come rock with me. You know what I'm saying? Like, yo, bring some of your people through, come help me build whatever it is. So I'm asking, like, if I see you have a glimpse of talent, I am just asking. There's no like, there's no shame. There's no, I'm just like, I got this vision and I'm going to ask away until enough people say yes to help build this thing. And that's kind of what ended up happening in the initial stage. Then you start to figure out, okay, cool. Like I got help. Do I got the right help? Are you consistent? When you're inconsistent, okay, cool. Because again, this isn't your vision. This might be something on the side for you until I got to a point where I was able to employ a squad. Um, if it's not for you, okay, cool. All right, now I got to figure out how to replace somebody who's going to come in, come out. So that was a part of the business. Just like a consulting firm that are going to come in, stay there for a few years, cycle out. Same exact thing I had to figure out. So I got to have a broad enough group. So we're starting to figure that part out. Um, and then you know, I think you then start to kind of figure out what your like core crew is. And then from there, you know, you see, okay, okay, let's try to figure out some partnerships. So then we was like, all right, well, we got our core crew. Who else is like doing something else in our space that we can kind of collaborate with? And now that helps expand it out. So partnership was a big part of how we were expanding it too. And then from there, again, you're continuously going through that process and, you know, bringing in more people and you know depending on the scale of it like some of our events we have 75 people working the event sometimes we only need a core team of like you know but on the basis our core team might have been seven to ten that was like our core core team but depending on what it does so now i'm you know dealing with scaling up scaling down but it really was depending and we kept ourselves super lean which was great one of the things we didn't do was build it i looking back, it was like, I didn't understand how to build it outside of like myself and my business partner, like for real, for real, to where like build infrastructure to where we can just go away and the thing continues. That was a lesson that like, you know, coming out of, I was like, ah, could have done better on that aspect. But, you know, that's, that's kind of how we went about building it. That's, that's what's up. And from what I remember, I think you, you mentioned this in um, the, your Reardon panel that you and your partner well, I'll ask you this after too, like why you chose an MBA, but you and your partner decided to go to, I believe two different schools, correct? Mm -hmm. And it was intentional because of you're trying to build out your network and because of the functions, like I think you were more focused on marketing and he was more focused on the operations okay. side, if I'm correct? Okay, what so what was your, your thought about it? He went to Wharton, I went to Kellogg. Yeah, 
Yeah. And so, so like, what, why did you guys decide to go to get your MBA, I guess, initially? From, I, I think he always knew he wanted to go do it. And I was always kind of opposed to it. Like people would mention it. I'm like, I'm trying to go back to school. I really don't want to go back. Like my life is good. Like no COVID, we're popping. <laughs> like we're making a lot of money. Like shit's good. You know, like I'm employing, like I'm good. Um, and I remember going to my, my five-year reunion and I ran into my boy. I ran into a homie that I met like in undergrad and he was there. So I'm joking around. I'm like, yo, remember, it's like, what are you, what are you doing on my campus? Whatever it is. He's like, oh, I'm in B school. He's like, yo, I'm like, where are you in B school right now? And I, I think at the time he was working at Sony and he was like, yo, like come meet some of the, my classmates, whatever it is. So I ended up meeting some of the classmates and he was just in my, you know, like, you should go to B school, you should go to B school. And I was like, whatever, like I'm thinking about it, but like, not really. And then my uncle again was like, I think you should think about B school. And I was like, whatever. <laughs> so then I get back home and me and my business partner were living together at the time and he's um I swear it's crazy I get back home and he says you don't think about going to B school like just out of the blue like sat me down like wanted to have a meeting with me like he was like breaking up I was like yo look Shannon I'll be real I'm thinking about going to B school and I was like huh interesting I said for whatever reason I think I'm starting to consider it now too like it could have we could have completely like at that moment like but I just so happened I was like you know what? like I'm might want to like I don't know, like I might, maybe there's, maybe there's some merit to it. And the, the why was I knew with what we were doing, we were operating very local, but I was trying to understand how to get global. Like I was really trying to understand how to like get global. And I also knew that, you know, I wanted, I, I knew that, I knew that this wasn't going to be the only thing I ever wanted to do. So I really didn't want to have a real network. Again, I, I've made I built a company based off like a community and a network, right? And being able to leverage that network in a lot of different ways and create a lot of value, right? I knew that, but that wasn't like, that was a community of a, a range of different industries, passions, whatever it is. I kind of wanted something business focused. I wanted to be able to have like a real community of like business heads that no matter what I want to do, again, I, I have my company and I have, and I want to partner with a brand. It was really hard in the beginning. Now I can just pick up the phone and call a classmate. I can text a homie, you know what I'm saying? I can hit the school. And I was like, I want to have that as a part of my arsenal as well. For whatever it ends up being in the future, I want to have that type of network that makes it a lot easier. Like you can get there, but I just, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I knew people went down that path. Um, I was like, I want to do that. The other part is like a little burnt out. Like we were working nonstop, like nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. So a little break honestly kind of felt like it it might be kind of like all right like a nice if there was a way to take a break this could be an interesting way to take a break um on top and and and, and also was like i knew that there were some gaps that i had like i knew that from an education standpoint there were things that you know i was learning a lot like on the fly but i knew that i could learn more um so that combination made it intriguing and then the final straw for me was like you know i'm a black man so it's not easy if I want to go and raise, and I was dealing with like racist, like racist, racist elements, like within the industry that I was working in, um, in nightlife and promotion, you know, and then like trying to figure out getting to brands like brands right now, they're like happy to work with black people. That was not the case. It was just not the case. They pick and choose their few select. That's just wasn't what it was. So I was like, you know, I want to make it so that there's no, 
when my resume, my whatever comes across, you're not asking them more questions about paperwork. You're not saying there's not enough this or that, whatever it is, like this should speak for itself. And so it was an expensive way to make it speak for itself. <laughs> but Thanks. I wanted to give myself at least that flexibility and optionality when walking in initially. Now, mind you, it, no matter what it is, then you still have to like go and close the deal and all that other stuff, whether it's the job, the deal, whatever it is. But I didn't want, I didn't want not having the credentials being something that like would hold me back. So that was kind of, that was part of the reason for saying, all right, like go. And then when we thought about going, um, it was like, all right, well, like I, my mind orients around marketing and like strategy in that way. So I started to look at schools and, you know, my business partner, his mind kind of operate, like he orients, you know, around the numbers and not saying we don't, we don't do both. This is kind of where he starts versus where I start. And so we were looking at schools and it was like, all right, well, who knows? And we'll figure it out. This is the one of my best friends. Like we're not doing a business right now. Like who knows what we'll do in the future. But like, we knew that like we had something really, really special and that, you know, if we're going to figure out where we're going to be, go into your superpower. So that kind of helped me feel more comfortable saying, okay, cool. Like when lean in and go all the way, like with Kellogg and like he ended up going to Wharton and I think it worked out, you know, pretty well. That's dope. That's dope. Um, and I like the fact that just to kind of go back that you identified somebody who played off of some of your strengths and your weaknesses and you were like, yeah, like we're definitely going to do something together and I got to find a way. Mm -hmm. And then you're like uh, DJ Khaled with Drake. You're like, we got to do a video. Got it. We got to do a business together. And you actually, you're hitting them up and you finally were able to, um, to execute on that. So I appreciate you sharing that. And it's really cool that you guys picked those two different paths as well. Like I'm going to go to Kellogg, he's going to go to Wharton and you held yourselves accountable. Um, you know, you go to Kellogg now, and then you ended up interning at Nike, um, where you were the global branding intern. Um, and you did like, I think you did like a summer series for like KD and LeBron. Um, but just, just curious. I know that was some hustling to, to get to that. There's some hustling to that. I got to get, get to that. Yeah, for sure. What, what, what was the hustle? So I was working as an intern in global brand planning and global brand planning was dope because I got to understand, like, again, I, I understand how to run a very local business. I didn't understand how to run a global thing, right? And so I got to walk into Nike and get to sit at the top of, like, the nexus of it and be able to understand, like, okay, you have Nike basketball, tennis, women's, sportswear, running, young athletes, whatever. You have all these different messages going out. What is, like, the big Nike message? How is that taking place across different categories? How is that taking place across different geographies? What is the hierarchy of that across seasons? And so that allowed me to like sit in that group and then work with all these different groups to then like figure out what that Nike brand global architecture was, which was extremely valuable, right? Like extremely, extremely valuable, especially when you have such a complex organization having so many messages going out at so many different times. What is it laddering up to? What takes it forefront? What, you know, what doesn't? Now, that was awesome. But like when I want to say like, I'm gonna go work in, at Nike and do marketing, and I'm trying to go deal with like Jordan and basketball and sportswear and like do like like the hot hot shit. Like this is like very structural and it was like the the it was the it was the information I needed, but like getting to basketball was what I wanted. So as an intern, I was like doing my thing and then I was just like starting to build relationships and meet people over there. And then I just kind of like, you know, by building some relationships with the basketball team and letting them know what my interests were and that, you know, of course, basketball head, blah, blah, blah. Um, I was able to kind of pitch, say, hey, can I do a stretch project? working with Nike basketball. I also figured that doing a stretch project as an intern, you know, is going to look good. It's probably going to give me an opportunity to like get a job. I'm doing this over here well. I'm doing this over here well. 
probably is going to like give me a leg up. Nike's very competitive. So that was, you know, a thing. And I also got to do something that I wanted to do because as much as I, after like a few weeks of the global brand architecture stuff, I was like, I got it. Like what I want to go do is like figure out, do marketing plans for Katie and LeBron and Kobe RIP and blah, 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 blah. And so ended up meeting the squad over there, ended up figuring out a way where I started to split my summer to where brand planning and working at uh, working with basketball. And within there, I got to, when LeBron came to campus, Katie came to campus, got to basically plan out like their summer, like the summer activations for them, you know, figure out what the entire thing was going to be for the campus, figuring out interviews with them. I was able to like conduct and do interviews. It was, and I'm an intern. It was just like crazy. I'm like, I'm sitting here like interviewing LeBron right now. <laughs> and mind you, LeBron hosted parties for me. Like when I was doing my party stuff, but it was such a different like dynamic versus like being in the Nike marketing thing and then figuring out this thing and then being able to like go and do the interviews um so that was part of like what my summer was and it was it was super super it was dope it was dope so that's, my what's up. that's what's up and I'm, i like the fact that you like again it's just like interscope like once you got in the door it was like i bet y'all done messed up now I'm finessing it um and you got the opportunity you wanted so i i think i saw i read somewhere that you you did like a a, a series called speak up where you shared a little bit about like your inspiration i don't know if you remember but wow, back, what what inspired you do you do you remember what that was it was a little bit of it was like a little bit of your i think the series was like kind of like sharing parts of your journey mm-hmm. and i was also cool as an intern like you know not really being able to get that opportunity but i got that opportunity like as an intern Mm-hmm. So like I was doing my thing over there, right? To then be able to get on the radar to like even get an opportunity like that, got to do it. And I think I end up, I end up kind of just telling kind of like a life's, like a life journey up to that point kind of story and like different themes. I don't remember all the things that went into it. I do remember, I do remember having a moment where I was just like, I, I remember I ended it with something about just like, you know, like count your blessings or whatever it is. Um, you know, you get into these jobs and, the, the most mundane things and the shit that don't matter, like people flip out about. Right. What meetings and just all this stuff. And I was just like, yo, like everybody for a second, like a lot of people, they really love this brand. Like you're fortunate to be at a place that like, you probably like, like what you're doing, right? Like it's a passion led organization. So like put that in the forefront because a lot of people would shoot you to be in the spot. Right. Now that doesn't mean that you have to be there forever. Cause I left. You know what I'm saying? But like, while you're there, and I wish I would have remembered some of that sometimes while, later on, but that, at least at that moment, was what I was, what I was on. No, that, that's dope. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I thought that was pretty unique. So I was like, I, I got to ask him. Uh, yeah, that. well, I forgot about that. I got to find <laughs> So, so you go back to Kellogg and then obviously after Kellogg, you go back to Nike where you're a global brand manager. And I thought this was dope that you got the chance to work on the Olympics. Uh, was that, that was Rio, right? 2016. Rio, 2016. So what, what was your, your impact there? Man, um, impact, I would say. I think the big, it was kind of, it's kind of connected to it. I think the biggest impact there was actually being able to work on Black History Month and connected to Rio. So we were going out to Rio back. I love Rio. Rio is like one of my favorite places on earth. Like, oh my God. You got to go there. Oh yeah, multiple times. Multiple times. With with Nike or with Nike with Kellogg at Kellogg and with Nike. So for the Olympic project, we were going back and forth. 
to Rio, setting up the plans, working with the Rio team, all this different stuff. So, and got to really experience Rio, like be in the worst of the worst, like straight city of God, and then be at the, the highest of the high with like the, I don't know, the government, whatever it is, like high level politics, got to experience the full range of it, right? You know, the International Olympic Committee, like it was a crazy, 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 crazy opportunity, right? And one of the things, you know, I saw was that, and this was prior, like being actually even getting on the like, it leads up to this. It was like, I saw how like, Rio's interesting. It's not, they wouldn't say that they're racist, but, but I would. And it just so happens that like, people like the, the vibe, they would say racist, but class is real. But it so happens that people who are darker are in the lower class. The people who are lighter, in the higher class. It's just it's interesting how that kind of worked out, right? Um, and there, the communities don't really connect in real ways. And there's a lot more to Rio. So Rio, when you think of Rio, you probably think, Copacabana, right? You're thinking like, you know, running on the beach, the little parties, but there's like, there's zones. And then you might think the favelas. Thing about Rio is like the favelas are looking down on these places. Like it, it's just a crazy dynamic of these things uh, of how Rio is kind of set up. And so we also wanted to make sure that what we were doing wasn't just reinforcing the one note when people think of Rio, which is like, again, the the parties and the beach and all that other we want to be in the communities and we want to have give back so we did a lot of dope like give back and like setting things up and like working with community leaders and like doing a lot of dope things like in real as a part of the olympic plan but then i was run i was ahead of black history month which is again another stretch project because i was like i want to get busy so there's a theme of like getting in and being like yo like i actually want to get to this this and this and this because otherwise i'm gonna be depressed and i got enough it's just <laughs> It's how you know, like I'm not that I don't, my tolerance for things I don't like is not that high when it comes to like my career um, and being in these orgs. So being out there in Rio, and I was already the head of Black History Month campaign. We were having this conversation with this local community, and I was like, "Yo, man, when I look at their history, when I'm looking at these people, there's such a connection to everything I grew up with, like in New York. Like the North Zone looks like Harlem. Like there's parts of there look like Two Fifth, like for real. And I'm like, they're like." Nike's not serving them and they're the history story is not being told and the connection because I'm getting I'm flying over here a lot of people have been to the states but they're getting inspiration from the state I'm like when you think about it from like a like a pan-african perspective I'm like there's so much history that's not being told in such an underserved community that I'm like because I just so happen to be a brand manager on the Olympics and I happen to be like our global lead for Black History Month and we're going to start this entire Olympic journey in Rio and it's so happened starting in February anyway I was like, I think there's an opportunity to connect with you. So was able to like figure out a way to do like some really dope Black History Month um, like collection, have the product in Rio, bring MC Light and work with partner with Jordan Brand to like do activations in there in the favelas, in not in the hood, in the North Zone, like all this stuff, like being able to give out product. I did this crazy combination of things um, that like for that community, they finally felt seen because a lot of times the brand, the insights, what led to that is like, when we talk to people in Rio, we're doing all the inside work. They're saying like, yo, I see Nike, but I don't feel connected to me. Right. Like it's aspirational and I get it, but like it's not serving me. It's not in my community because they're not activating those communities. But since I got to see the range of it, I saw this opportunity to bring them together. And I think that to me was probably like the biggest impact. Um, and I'm still cool with like people from the Rio Brazil team 
Um, but just with DMing with somebody about some stuff now for, you know, that I'm doing now, but like an opportunity to connect. But like that to me was probably the biggest impact. And then, and, then, and then after that, you end up just in the corporate, like, and then you get to the Olympics and it's just like, okay, we got the right insights. We work with the agency. We put the commercial together. Like it was big. Like I'm not downplaying that, but when I think about impact, impact, I look at that. Right. And it goes back to when you were leaving Stanford, how you knew that you wanted to be close to the culture. And so now you found this opportunity where you could use the network that you're already working on to kind of tie back to that culture. Um, that's really dope. And, and I may have to, I have to ask as well, like, for those of you, for those people that are going through the Nike route, how did you go about getting that, that um, position post-grad? Yeah. Um, so I was in MLT. Okay. And management leadership for tomorrow. It's a pre-MBA program, mm-hmm. similar to Brandon. We actually had a, and one of the set, one of the, one of the, sessions we had because we have sessions at different corporations or different places so like they might have one at target right we might be in minneapolis for something minneapolis and target or we might be in atlanta at coke or whatever it is we have and sometimes at the colleges but one of the last receptions or like sessions seminars what he had was actually in portland at nike before i started school so i was when i when i was applying to school i also was not thinking about any like nike or anything like that like i was actually thinking okay cool like i'm initially just going to like do my business figure out whatever new business I want to do or continue it and then go back to my business. Like I really was not thinking in turn, whatever it is. It wasn't until I got to school that I was completely burnt out and I was like, okay, like, and I knew I couldn't conjure up that thing again to like, I knew what it took to start something. I was like, I can't, I, that gear is, I got the rest I need to do. Um, so I really wasn't looking at like internships going in, but what prior to school I had visited Nike's campus. And I remember people there, they were being like, yo, like you could be here. I was like, hmm? They're like, yo, you should, you should, they're like, how you move, you could be here at Nike and be killing it. And I was like, huh, okay. Like, I just, I kind of like parked in the back of my head. So then I ended up meeting, like, you know, they had people worked in Nike. So I met a few people in Nike, stayed in contact a little bit. And then um, MLT, um, you know, then that's all. So then there was National Black NBA. So the National Black NBA, like, um, you know, association, big conference. MLT was actually having interviews for Nike early. Um, so as a result of that, the person I was going to end up interviewing with was somebody that I met from the trip from before. And we just like vibed, like vibed, like shouts to Julie, like just like just straight, like dope, like super cool, like sitting there just like NCAA tournament on where like NCAA, it was NCAA tournament. I'm all over the place right now. So you're gonna have to edit this, but whatever. It's the NCAA tournament when I'm at Nike and she, um, and when we're visiting Nike prior to school, prior, like, prior, blah, blah, blah. let me start over. How do I want to say this? You're gonna have to edit all this. Sorry. You're good. Um, what was the question again? How'd I get it? How'd you get that opportunity? So I'll just do this. So prior to going to B, prior to going to B school, I was in a program called MLT, which is Managed Leadership for Tomorrow. And there was a seminar that they had in Portland at the Nike campus. So I ended up visiting the Nike campus, never thought I was going to go to Nike at all. Like it just wasn't even in the realm of like what I was thinking about. And a few homies were like, yo, you could be here. And it was kind of like, yo, you, how you move in your shoes and just like, you could be here. And mind you, it's my favorite brand in the world, like ever. So I was like, huh, Portland, huh. but Nike, huh. like, it's like, all right. 
So fast forward, I get to business school and there is a national black MBA conference and they were doing some interviews um, through management leadership for tomorrow through with Nike. So they had a range of interviews set, whatever. And so I ended up just like getting into the interview thing. I kind of went to like the pre-interview thing, ended up making some relationships with people who were at Nike. And then one of the people I met prior uh, who was one of the recruiters was also there. So then saw set what up. And I remember like good vibes from before. So did my interview there, um, did well and ended up doing like another phone interview, whatever it was, or video interview. But it was weird because it's not like this Zoom. It was nobody's in front of you and they're asking me the questions and you're just like looking at yourself in 2012 before people were used to looking at themselves. So it was just like super weird. Get through that. And then I ended up having a final phone interview and then ends up getting it. And I knew that I was going to be interviewing for like the marketing development program. And they take basically two MBAs in the country for this joint. So it was like super, super selective. But in my head, I was like, well, I felt that, I mean, and it's maybe it's sick, but I just felt the odds were good. Like I was like, all right, well, if they're taking two people and there's going to be mad people applying, I'm just like, I don't think most people had my background. Like I just felt like I just, and so I was like, if it's Nike and it truly is Nike, I feel like I can be myself and I can share my background and I can share the passion and I can show my shoe closet and I'll be all right. And some combination of that ended up being okay. So then one of the things which I mentioned the Brazil thing, and I think it probably helped me is before I even got the yes, I had already started doing some like, you know, trying to talk and meet to people with Nike and just try to like get some information. And I was doing a project at Kellogg, which was going to take us out to Brazil. And my project was on uh, the impact of the impact of brands that the impact of impact of brands, impact brands are going to have on Rio or on Brazil during the Olympics and the World Cup. And so as a result, I was like, hey, Nike, I know I don't got a job yet, but I'm doing this project and I'm actually going to be going to Rio. I would love to meet and I know I'm interviewing, but I would love to meet with the Nike Rio team because I'm doing this project on the impact of brands and culture and blah, 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 that it's going to have on Nike. I mean, that's going to have on, you know, Brazil. Yep. for the World Cup and the Olympics. And I know for sure that, you know, you guys are having a huge impact there. So that was part of like me, I did my interviews and then I was like, I got something for y'all asses. And I hit them with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are like the true finesse God, bro. Like that. I don't, I mean, is it, I, it, I mean, finesse has such like, you know, negative. No, I mean that in a positive way. I mean, the, in negative the- I would say, I, I would I would say it's much more, man, like it's it's go for the fucking kill. You know what I'm saying? Like it's if you want the thing, make it really hard for them to say no. Right. Right. And mind you, I didn't interview. I only interviewed when I was in B school for two places, them and Caesars Entertainment, because I was either like, I'm going to go and like do hospitality or I'm going to go do Nike. I didn't interview for anything else. Can I ask? Because, hmm? No, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Because I was like, yo, if I'm gonna interview for these two things and I have this background, I feel really good about the odds, even though they're only gonna take one person, they're gonna take two people. I don't feel as good about the odds about me going to interview McKenzie. Not that I couldn't do it, but I don't care. Like it's just that's not what I'm like super passionate about. So what am I gonna I could I could fin that's finesse to me. Like finesse is me like acting like I can actually be a McKenzie consultant. That is finesse. This was go with go with what you know. Go with what you put 10,000 hours in 
and tell somebody stand up next to it. That's not finesse. That's going for the kill. So that's that's if I'd have got McKenzie, I'd be like, yo, you are really finessing because you don't want to do that at all. And you convince them that you actually feel like flying to Iowa and sitting in there in khakis on the side of a corner, like you're getting paid, but that's finesse to me. This is much more like, yo, you put the hours in, go for the kill and make them beat them over the head and make it impossible for them to tell you no. Right. That's what's up. And and, and I have to ask too, based on like your experience at that point, is it wrong for me to say that Caesars would have been more in line with where you were at in terms of like, you had done the experiential solution? Yeah, no, no. I think Caesars was shooing. So, so what- Caesars why? was like shooing. I, I, no, I don't disagree with you at all. So why did you decide Caesars over Nike? You mean Nike over Caesars? Sorry, Nike over Caesars. I did not want to live in Las Vegas. I hate gamble. I don't gamble. I don't want to live in Portland either. It was, listen, it was a tough decision, okay? Like I, looking back, I would have made a lot of, I would have done a broader thing. I also thought it was going to be just a summer, whatever it is. But when it came down to it, I was like, I, I hate Vegas. I really do. I hate Vegas. I love Miami. If it had been Miami, I would have moved. It would have been no brainer. Yeah. The only, in the back of my head, the other place I was thinking about was Fontainebleau because I love Miami. But I was just like, Vegas, I'm like, Portland is whack. But Vegas Oh, that's hell. <laughs> just like, I can't do hell. So that's, that is actually, I think what it finally came down to. Plus like as a brand, like Nike is my favorite brand on earth. Yeah. Still like it, it's, it's, it speaks to my soul. Like as much as my back at that point, like I was a shoeing, but like my soul athlete, just like Nike spoke to those things. Mm-hmm. So it was like, all right, like, I guess you gotta try this Portland thing out. Not the worst, you know, like the worst opportunity. Like just for me though, not it's a, and shout out to everybody in Portland. Just for me. You know, <laughs> just, so you're there at Nike for I think around two years. Mm-hmm. And I remember this specifically from the Reardon interview as well, that you mentioned you were in a lot of those different rooms and like we're talking about already how you leveraged your way to get into a lot of these different projects. And you see how I said leverage, not finesse. I'm using leverage now. Okay. And I hear. And, but you got to a point where like, you could have been, let's say a, a director or a VP or whatever that may be. Like you could have had one of those positions, but you realized that that wasn't for you. And could you talk a little bit about like your decision? Okay, like Nike is your favorite brand and you, you have all this amazing experience, but then your decision to leave. And then you, after that you go to Anomaly. Yeah, um, I broke it down I, think I, I broke it down at that point. I kind of broke it down to three things for me, I, you know, and I was like, all right, well, if I want to be my greatest self, I kind of broke it into formula. Like I was like, all right, like, I was like, I'm not feeling when I was there, I was like, I knew I didn't love Portland. And I also knew that I, I like, I love Nike, but I don't know if I, at that point, like, I wanted to be in an organization that big. Let's start this all over. Ask me the question again. Oh, oh, oh okay, okay, sorry. I was like, now I got to get political. <laughs> I got to get, oh. I got to get political. Okay. I do. All right. So, so you you working at Nike, right? And and you've been there for for two years. And I remember specifically from the Reardon panel that you mentioned, like, yeah, I could have been in the C-suite if I had worked my tail off. Like, I, I could have been there in, in years to come. But there came a decision point where you decided like, this just wasn't for me. 
And you mentioned again, like this was your favorite brand. You're working on these amazing projects. Mm-hmm. What was the deciding factor for you to leave Nike and then go to Anomaly? Yeah, it, I think it brought out a few things. One, I wanted to get back to really being able to build. Like I, I enjoy building versus, if you ask me build something versus build and, and tweak it, I would probably, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean towards building. And I think at that point in my life, and again, who knows where I get to 50, whatever it is, that's a whole nother situation. But at that point, I was, I really wanted to get kind of back to like building. So when Anomaly became an opportunity and they're opening the LA office and they already had a bunch of a global network and Beats by Dre, which is a great cultural brand, had just got that account. It was gonna be able to come down to LA and like, you know, be one of the leads on that joint. That to me seemed really appealing. I also wanted to get back to being in a big city, you know, and, and I'll, I you know, talked about Portland, but I'm a big city kid. So like you get to a certain point where like, you know, you realize you have these different experiences and it's like, you know, like, like Kellogg was great. Evanston, you know, wasn't my favorite place. Like I would try to get to Chicago more. Um, you know, I'm a New York, I lived in LA. Like I like bright lights and big cities. It just, it's just what inspires me and makes me happy in that way. So. At that point, I, I knew I was like, all right, you know, I've had an amazing experience here, but there's a part of me that does fulfill a little unfulfilled, and, and it has nothing to do at this even with Nike. It just has to do with just like where it actually sits at this current point in my life. And at that point, I wanted to be like back where it was popping. So when that came up as an opportunity, it was like, all right, like I feel like this is combination of building, combination of great brand. Com- they just won Ad Agency of the Year, so I was like, all right, like and, and I get to come in early and like help build. And back in LA, and they were the office was on Abbott Kenny in Venice, and I wanted to live on the west side anyway by the water. I was like, you know what? This feels this feels good. So got back to LA. That's dope. And you mentioned that one of your accounts was uh, Beats by Dre, um, and you got I remember the specific commercial, the the no strings. Yeah, I had like DJ Khaled. You had Travis Scott, which was probably around his like no. Yeah. Travis. He was like bubbling. Like it was like, it was, we got like before he is, this isn't Astro World Trap Scott. This is like rodeo. Exactly. Um, what was that like? Like working at Anomaly, working on that project? Um, like what was your role in that? Yes, yeah, so I was a global business director um, over there. So that was really, it was, and it was a really cool project. It was a really cool project. I think the cool part about it was Beats at that time, I think we, like right now, influencer marketing, because you mentioned those guys, but the real impact of that project was like Eddie Wang and Liza Koshy. And like, you know, we had Amber Rose and they are the ones when we put them on social and they put it on there, they had way more engagement than Pharrell and Nicki Minaj did. Karen Silver too. So we had like that, I think it was early in that, in that, in, um, in that time to where we understood like the, the, the power of like influencers in that way and their audience and the ability ability to like drive affinity, drive engagement, drive conversation. So that at the time in 2016 was not as novel. You weren't seeing, you know, Liza Koshy and Eddie Wang and Nicki Minaj and DJ Khaled in the same thing with Steve Buscemi like the, and like, you know, uh, Rebel, Rebel Wilson. You weren't seeing that all in one thing. And that to me was like a really cool opportunity to like, like bring all that together. And then, you know, 
the um the opportunity like you know really to work with like the asia pacific team and like be able to figure that out cool let's make the take of this now that's going to fit for like the asia pacific audience and being able to take all these different assets and be able to roll out like an asia pacific truly a global plan so that kind of me was a that was kind of like the, the cool thing for doing that and that's on top of like the creative and being able to get disney to say like yes um and then you know so the opportunity you know going through that entire process building out that creative building out the global strategy um working with the beach team you know that, you know the different agencies that kind of brought it to life like it was it was cool that's dope that's dope um nama is one of those those top agencies out there uh we, we talked before the conversation about like translation and stuff like that so like you were working for the creme de la creme um i think that's really dope and i know at the same time you started one of your passion projects which was 7x media at the time yeah. um, which was like really celebrating like black culture um and i think that's around the time that i you know right around then i think i you were talking about how that that company was um it started off in like a text chain and you guys built it out to like these yeah. 50 people uh masters of the minds parties and you guys are doing stuff at like coachella and south by southwest but would love to hear your perspective about like what that project had looked like back then. Yeah, no, I think the the big thing was I felt like you weren't seeing. There's a few things I felt, and I still feel this way. Like you're not. It is you're seeing more of it now, and unfortunately, like takes a George Floyd to pass to get like looks and be able to tell more stories and like just like attention to the full range of notes of black culture. But I just felt like in general you weren't seeing a big portion of representing. You see a lot of people at the top. You see a lot of like bullshit on the bottom. There's a lot of people who are doing great work. Like your story, Justin, like isn't told like that. Your story is going to inspire the next generation. So I was like, I know a lot of people in this space. Let me create experiences and let me create content around this group and show the full range. So yeah, we can like turn up and throw some turn up at Coachella and have a crazy gift and sweet, like crazy experience over there we can have sick ass ski trip whatever people all across the country fly out and really be able to like build with each other and throw a crazy like 90s party and do all that we can also do like you know workshops and partner with twitter and you know do stuff about like you know seven questions going into like introspection about yourself and like how do you like develop as a human right we can show that thing and we can show the full range of the story so that's what a part of the experience part but the other side of that we can show these people um, and get it out through content. And like, if you can take, create content around these people and tell these stories, which is exactly what you're doing, even hollering at me to be on here, which is dope because this is what I, I always feel like, these are the stories that need to be told. Just like I'm on this side saying all my bullshit. You have your story that is gonna inspire somebody and like, and they need to see the connections because they, they don't have the exposure to see you. So if you're able to package that up in content, create it in a format that people can rock with, that it can show it to people who are in your peer group, show it to people above and also show the youth, to me, that was really, really important. So that was kind of the genesis of saying, hey, like I wanna bring and elevate and uplift my black community. There's a lot of people who are doing great stuff that people don't know. They don't see what people are doing. They're not getting together in groups. Um, they're in little portions, but they're not like somebody bring, bringing it together. So again, it was like utilizing just passion of just people, relationships. Um, those same people from Stanford that I mentioned from before, they were just the first people that were at the event and we're telling their stories and getting that out um and again different people i've met across the journey um so that to me was kind of what was really important about you know elevating these black stories and building community with these people and you know and, and putting it out to the world that's yeah i i think that's that's dope and it's it's actually one of the main reasons why i brought you on as you know aside from the reardon was seeing that story i think 
at the time, only, only I can remember was like 7X and like Blavity were ones of, of like who were building the culture who were really talking about these these um, these issues and bringing out like and highlighting people who um, mm. necessarily weren't like you, I think what you talk about was in your mission when, when you had the company was like um, creating a building a legacy people that were like not on like a mic or, 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 or with a basketball in their, in their hand. Um, I think that's phenomenal because I think more people need to see that. So and it's not like having a mic or a basketball is a bad thing. It's just having is getting all of those stories and those notes out and like connecting all the people within those community with people with a mic and a basketball because their platforms are way larger. And then how do you bring them together to put good into the world? So yeah, still yeah. there more to come. More to come, more to come. Um, so, so you work at Anomaly, um, you're doing work with Beats by Dre and PlayStation. Um, and then you leave there and now you're at, you go, you go to three black dot, which is at the intersection of like gaming and, and culture. Um, mm -hmm. You were a VP of marketing there. Uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about like some of the work that you did there and why'd you make that jump too to go into gaming? I mean, did you see something yeah. there in, in that industry that was like, yeah, that's the next wave? Yeah, so the combination of a few things, I think, um, I was working at I was working at Anomaly, and we ended up hiring gaming. Uh, we ended up we we had a program. Ask ask it again. Oh, okay. So you um, you're working at Anomaly. You're working at Beast by Dre and PlayStation, and then you ended up leaving and going to Three Black Dot, where you became the VP and head of marketing. Um, you must it, and and for any of those who don't know, Three Black Dot is on the crossroads of gaming and entertainment what made you make that leap? Was it, were you seeing something in the gaming industry, like that's the next wave or what, 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 what made that move? So I think the, it was, it was a few things. It was one, again, the opportunity to build the company just got bought out by a French media company with media. So it was like, Hey, come here and help us build this from like 15 people to 75. Um, and, you know, be a part, you know, lead and be a part of that growth. So that was like a super kind of cool opportunity to do it because I was working on PlayStation at Anomaly actually got to actually got to work with Three Black Dot prior to actually getting there. So I was able to bring them on as a part of a, a portion of our campaign because they were they had an in, they had a network of some of the biggest influencers in the gaming space in the world. So then when you start to dive into these gaming numbers and you look at these influencers, and I told you it was like, yo, we, we thought influencers on one side of it was crazy with the Beast by Dre stuff. When you start looking at this gaming thing, they're like, yo, what? Hold on a second. And they, they huh? They're, they're playing whatever call of duty Fortnite, and then they just throw a video of them playing and three million people are watching like hold on a second this is a huge huge space so these content creators i was like okay cool like, these are people who are building their audience on their own and yes gaming is the foundation but when we started to like meet with these content creators they would actually have aspirations to do a lot more so that's why we were in an intersection of like gaming of kind of gaming culture gaming entertainment um so it was opportunity to go over there and build and the opportunity kind of you know you know see these influencers and kind of get an understanding of kind of like how is how like what it, what are the different ways is influ influencers like monetizing themselves what are the ways that they're creating ip what is the way that you know three black dog you know creating original ip and then leveraging the influencer into it to me as a marketer um and just you know marketer business person i just like this is an audience that's really really powerful and this is a skill set that i think is going to be one that is going to it might be going crazy in gaming but i see this gonna, it's going to take place in beauty it's going to take place in sports it's going to take place in apparel it's going to take place in cpg like they're going to be people who are going to build these audiences let me understand how they are doing this the different tools that they're doing and how they're monetizing and operating with brands and 
also building it up on their own. So that to me was kind of the opportunity to, um, to you know, go over there and kind of you know be head of marketing and kind of lead that up. So that was like a you know when that when it got a, got thrown to my table, I was like, you know, that's that's interesting. Like I'm a gamer, but like but like old school gamer. Like I play like you know GTA, um, like you know Vice City and you know 2K, but like way back when. Like I didn't really actually get back on gaming, even though I was like head of marketing over there for gaming with you know in in, in that space. I didn't really start gaming again until the beginning of uh, the pandemic. Like, yeah. I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get the Spider-Man game. <laughs> let me get 2K real quick. I'm going to get, like, Red Dead Redemption 2. Like, let me just start, you know, getting on these sticks a little bit. And I fell off. And I tried to get a PS5, but, you know, good luck. Exactly. So at some point, I'll get a PS5 and I'll be a gamer for, you know, a few weeks. But it is an industry that is, is it, it's, it's one that I think people in general should study um the stickiness like the way they the way they make these games and the way they're able to monetize the stickiness of this and the and the active audience um and people seek entertainment and it's a very easy way that you know they're on here they're on a computer like they're consistently engaged with it and i think that there's something that like businesses in general could learn and how they are able to like even they can learn from gaming and figure out how to gamify products that they have and different services that they have just because the stickiness is so real no, for sure. I mean, uh, I'm sure you've seen it throughout the industry. I mean, I remember seeing like these these gaming competitions that would sell out like Staples Arena, mm -hmm. like companies like 20,000 for Overwatch, League of Legends, 20,000 sold out. Crazy. 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 But think about it. Any nephew or cousin or little whoever you have, they're on it all day. And they're buying skins and it's, it's it's crazy. NBA 2K, they're bu they're buying sneakers and they're buying things, to, and not just playing the game, but they got to style it up. So they're actually taking real money to throw it into the virtual world. Like, and if anything, with COVID and what's happening, it is you can expect to see a lot more of it to cross over to other industries. Yeah, hundred percent. And you have companies like PlayVS, you got Twitch that's that's monetizing off of it as well, who's built their community off of it. So I think you definitely had um, your pulse on something that was that was big. I'm curious to hear from you, like, what do you feel like the future of, of gaming looks like? Hmm. I think there's a, I'll speak, there, there's a range of it. I'm, I'm not even going to go on the technology side. I'm just going to talk on the culture side. I think you're going to see a lot more cultural collaboration in gaming. So like Trav Scott and what he did with Fortnite, I think you're going to see more of that. Like in the game, really cool experience because the games don't die now. That's the other side of it. It's not like back in the day with the Nintendo, you put in Mario and then it ended and you got to press reset. Like these games, like, again, this is like living, like living, breathing mechanisms. So they can keep programming new things in and keeping that audience engaged. So I think you're going to see a lot more like exclusive content, a lot of collaborations, things that you would not normally expect. Cause you're not thinking you're going to play Fortnite and have a Travis Knight, Travis Knight concert and then sell merch from it. And then have a Travis Knight pack where you're playing and buying it and monetize. Like, I think you'll see more of that um, moving forward. Yeah. And they, they built out like the subscription services and, and so forth. There's just layers and layers into it. So, and just crazy, and just the technology is so crazy too. So, I, it's VR is a hard one to me. I still think it's, they're going to have to figure out a way to make VR not make people sick and the headwear thing. But I think 
whenever they figure out this VR thing where you don't have to have this crazy headwear on it and it's still that that's gonna be that's when I think it's gonna take its next like yeah. crazy. I agree, I agree. Cause it, it's dope, but then like once you're in it for a little bit, you're like, okay, this is uh <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm nauseous. <laughs> so you end up leaving three black dot. You're now at Rock the Bell as a general manager. Um, you know, it's El Cool J's company and you're you, you really focus on like that hip hop, you know, from a high level, like um, what what is Rock the Bell and what do you guys do? So Rock the Bells is the preeminent voice for classic and timeless hip hop connecting to the modern culture. So fortunate that you have, you know, LL Cool J, who is somebody who's been from the beginning and an icon across like multiple generations um you know when he was thinking about it he was like we don't there's not something in the hip-hop space that's like elevating the people who created it and drawing the connections to like what is taking place now and showing that impact and showing how this like community is all coming together through a content through a commerce through experiences so that is kind of the space that we play in where you know we serve this class in time with hip-hop audience do it through a modern lens serving with content create dope experiences for them from a commerce from a merchandise perspective via products products that they're that, are, that they're interested in as well so it's kind of the universe that uh we operate in okay thank you thank you for sharing that um so now i'm going to get to a little bit of like a round robin of questions um for people who are considering getting an mba i know you mentioned like you made this dumb decision to go to mba i'm being funny but you know what do you say to those people um, who are thinking about it? Um, how should they be thinking about that whole process? Save money in advance. <laughs> well, it's expensive. I'm still paying for it. Save money. <laughs> I'm serious. Like really save money for it. Because, and there's multiple levels of it. There's like save money because you're going to want to go on all the trips. And you're going to have all the experiences that you're going to have during it. And then, you know, then you got to pay for that one way or another, one way or another. If you go YOLO and swipe it up or whatever it is, I think you should experience it fully, but I think there's a level of like savings that um, you should you should have going into it that, because a lot of the classmates, you go in there, you don't realize the level of classmates are falling. And it's not because of their job that they currently had. It's because of lineage. <laughs> it's just because of lineage. It is what it is, man. No. So, you're going to want to do these things. You want to go on these trips and you're going to want to have these experiences and you should. And I think it was amazing. It was like what I needed at the time. It just hit. It just hit. So that's one part. Uh, so that's bank account associated. I think, um, I think being focused. So I think there's a balance of being true, doing your pre-homework about what you actually want to get out of it. I think there's B school, I think you can only, there's time for three things. There's getting a job, there's learning, there's your relationships, like there's like the community. I think you can only do two well. I really, I, there's just the volume of each is really, really difficult. So I think you can do two well. Not to say that you're not going to do all three, but I think you can do two well. So you got to kind of pick what the two that you kind of want to do well is. But I think that's a good way to think about it. And then if you're then thinking about from a job perspective, I really do think that you should you should really be in the mind. Like you should really think about like, I'm gonna be here for these two years, but really where do I wanna be afterwards? 
And what am I okay with not spending time on? Because what ends up happening is you go through the interview process with a lot of these companies. Like I'm very rare where, you know, it's two, I interviewed at two spots. That's not probably what people should do. I, I'm not saying it's just, it's the route I chose. But on the other side, I was very, very pointed in what I wanted to do. And I was able to say no to all the other stuff. So I wasn't worried about showing up to Mixer over here session over here, something over here. Eh, I kind of, I guess I'll just interview here. I kind of knew the spaces that I wanted to play in. Um, and I think you should be broader than the two spots that I looked at, but I do think there's a balance. So, so I was too extreme. I do think you should broaden the aperture, but you should know where the boundaries are and say, you know what, I'm not interested. So like, you might not be interested in marketing. You might not be interested in biotech. You might not be interested in general management. Like that's cool. If you want to do finance, play in that space if you want. So that, that I think, I see a lot of people, they spend a lot of time going all over the place and they're not focused and um, it's very stressful. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I think I was trying to figure out balancing that noise as well when I first got here, because to your point, once you get to some of these schools, it's like the world is your oyster. Like everybody's saying like, you could come come talk to us. You can get a first round interview and you're trying to decide, okay, that's a, that's a sexy company, but is that right for Rasheen or for Taha? I mean, for, for Justin, like, I, I feel you on that. Um, yeah. My my next question is, what is Rasheen's legacy? Like when 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 it's all said and done, what will Rasheen's re legacy be? Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'll just go, I'll go with what I'm thinking. I want, um, I want to be known as, I would like the legacy be one, like just like a good person. Like I would want people to be like, yo, that was, like that was a good dude. Yeah. Um, who, and there's a range of ways you could interpret that, but that's one. Um, two, I would say that I hope that inspiring people to bet on themselves and when i say bet on themselves i mean actually like follow the things that they're interested in but also bust your ass to get there like betting on yourself is not like it's it's not in the i'll say it in a vacuum like there's a lot of like if you bet on yourself that's cool you have to put in a lot of work but then you should bet on yourself and i think when you do that i think you you think you end up having a more fulfilled life um so that's kind of my the, the why behind that but yeah I would just I want to you know I want to be somebody who's a good person you know people enjoy being around brought joy to them inspired them to then bet on themselves and there's that and, and I think also just like you know yeah somebody inspired people just to be great like unapologetically fucking great you know what I'm saying? Which then requires you to put in a lot of work and bet on yourself and all that other stuff but like these are the things that you know, on the tombstone or like, what was Taha about? You know, he was about having fun, turning up, being a good person. Also about betting on yourself, believing in yourself, like pushing yourself. Um, and I don't say that in a, this isn't in the Michael Jordan way. If you'd asked me this a few years ago, I would have given you like a very Michael Jordan type answer, but I'm getting older, I'm getting more Zen. So this isn't a very like balanced, <laughs> balanced way. <laughs> um, betting on yourself is not at the cost of, betting on yourself and busting your ass at the cost of like your mental health and 
like your family, all that other stuff. But it is about, you know, picking your lanes and being focused and putting in the work. But believing that you, if you do that, you should have some pretty good outcomes. So I hope that's a legacy. I like that. I like that. It's simple too. Um, during this pandemic, what is one thing you could not be without? Sidecar donuts. Sidecar donuts. What is <laughs> Sidecar donuts, yo. I've been, I just got them today. Donuts, yo. <laughs> you know, like, there's a spot in LA called Sidecar Donuts. They're fucking amazing. And, and they're just, and, and I only get them like once a month. And I got to make sure, you know, I get my five workouts in. So I have my two boxing sessions this week, did the yoga, you know, did the home prison workout, you know what I'm saying? But today I got Sidecar Donuts, yo. So that is the one thing that like outside of everything, it is a very pandemic. I had them before, but Sidecar became a mainstay over the top. You know what I'm saying? Once a month, um, you know, treat yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a chain. It's a chain, I'm assuming. Uh, I, and they have a few. That I don't, I, they have a few. They got like one in, they got one in Santa Monica, one in Torrance, yo. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if they got them in other places, but they're phenomenal. Yeah, I got you. That's hilarious, yo. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you're wearing something deep, but that's that's what I got. No, 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 no. That that's that's right on right on point. Um, my last question is: Is there a music lyric or a movie line that you live by? And wait, I'm gonna say this as well. You cannot say Jay Z. I've heard enough of the Jay Z. It cannot be Jay Z. Okay. No Jay Z. Uh I had I had a Jay Z line in my head. <laughs> Jay Z for life. Um, what was the Jay Z line just so I could hear it? Huh? What was the Jay Z line just so I could hear it? Um, which one? Um, oh man, um, no, nah, I'm not even gonna say it. I'm, not even gonna say it. I'm gonna. I, if it's too play, um, I can't. We can't do a J J line. Oh, what's a hip hop line to live by? Um, dang, seeing as I work, you know, you know, I'd rock the bells for time and some classic hip hop. I should be able to have this on demand. Um, but I was not prepared for this. Um, I'll give you a second. No worries. I'll tell you the ones that were said. So, uh, Jay Z's, uh, I'd rather live enormous, or I could rather live enormous than live dormant. That's how we on it. Difficult uh, mm -hmm. takes a day, impossible takes a week. Mm -hmm. uh, Diddy's, uh, 10 years from now, we still be on top. I heard that one. Mm. And then there was, a, there was a Drake line too, I'm sure that was in there. Yeah, uh, definitely not giving the Drake line. <laughs> so, we're weeding it out. We're weeding it out. Uh, oh, man. so I got, G, I got, all right. So the J, the J line, but we're not going to use it. You can't, you can't post it. <laughs> cool. 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 The J line is, um, um, I sell ice in the winter. I sell fire in hell. I am a hustler, baby. I sell water to a well. <laughs> <laughs> That's my oh, we got to use it now. All right, there it is.
<laughs> well, I think there's a, there, there's a Jeezy line that like I feel like sums this up too. Um, dang. Um, go look it up. Look it up. You can look it up real quick if you want to. I cut around it. Jeezy. Uh, Which oh, by the way, I'm uh, interviewing uh, Imani Davis later this week. Next week, yeah. I want to hear hers. I go hard in the I go hard in the motherfucking paint. Let's just use that one. <laughs> no, nah, there's a there's a there's no 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 no. There's a dip set one. There there's um. <laughs> Yo, please, please, wait. I will re-ask the question if you bring out Dipset. I swear. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. There's um. It's a, there's no. It's a. It's a. It's a. Um. There's a. There's a. There's definitely a. Uh, hold on, camera. I can't cam. You gonna use like a down and out, Kanye? Nah, nah. Purple haze. Yes, yeah, purple haze can. It's purple haze or something from from dips. Um. Yeah. Uh, oh, Matt's. Hey, I never. It's a good one. Hold on. <laughs> Mm, dang man, I'm dang one struggle right now. Hold on, I was not prepared for that. Um, dip set. Um, I don't, uh, I don't want to use that J line. <laughs> you got a better one? <laughs> no, no, I just don't want. I don't want to use. There's a Jeezy line for this, man. Damn. Actual real stress, man. Like you just see, like this real stress, man. <laughs> I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be making dinner and shit. Now I'm over here looking at Jeezy lines. Uh, there's a dip set. I know. Gosh, I don't know why. Hmm. <laughs> we gonna have to keep the chase. <laughs> I was gonna say born or dictate never follow orders, but I be following orders right now. I'm an employee, so I can't really, I can't <laughs> use that line right now. But that's actually, that whole, actually no, wait, wait, wait. Actually, there's there, so this is, somebody just asked like, what's your, 
like what's your life anthem mm-hmm. and i say you don't know it really is though so I, there's there let me let me look at let me look at here Is that the, you have a uh, principles behind you by Ray Dalio? I do. Yeah, great book. I do. And that's reason without lyrics in my head, there's so much over it. It's crazy how Jay-Z is just like programmed all of us. It is though, it is like, literally, I've done like seven or so episodes, I would say about five people have used Jay-Z by. It's quite funny. And not even my, the line that I came up with was uh, difficult takes a day, impossible takes a week was. Mm-hmm. You said with the live by? Yeah. Damn, we quit with Jay, bro. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got it. Got it. I knew it. Run his back. So. I got it. No, it's actually Eminem. But it's with Jay. Okay, okay. Renegade. I drove by the fork in the road and went straight. Hey. <laughs> I'm tripping this whole time. I was like, if I wrote a book, when I heard that, if I wrote a book, that would be the name of my book. I like it. I like it. I drove by the fork in the road and went straight. That's the line. Let me let me ask you one more time in case I gotta cut around it. So <laughs> I might I might just soundbite. I might we'll see what I can what I'll work with it. All right, so what is a movie line or music lyric that you live by? Boy, now now movie line? Yeah, that was, that was it. That was the question. Oh, I didn't know movie line was in it too. Um, <laughs> you didn't put in on this, man. Nah, 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 nah I don't even smoke. <laughs> That's not it. Uh, I drove by the fork in the road and went straight. Hey. Eminem, Eminem on Renegade. Bet. I appreciate you, Rashid. This has been a pleasure, my man. Like always, real. Be good. Stay warm. COVID free. Put your mask on, man. Y'all be out here just, just big ten wilding out, man. Just make sure y'all, y'all nice and safe over there. Okay. <laughs> we got safe. you, bro. We got you, bro. Next time I'm in LA, I'm gonna hit you up too. So thank you again for for being on the. Distance. <laughs> <laughs> you, you be easy, man.